our, our founding pastor, um, Ephraim Smith, Pastor Ephraim Smith, would talk about the uh, multicultural vision in the book of Revelation where all different uh, folks are praising around the throne. And he would say that the sanctuary was a sneak preview of heaven. It's in that spirit that we come with this new series that um, we're, we're calling Voices from God's Mosaic because we're striving to be all that God wants us to be. And the first voice today is uh, Professor Khan Nguyen. Now, you'll also hear, as you see in the bulletin, you'll hear from Pastor Rosalie Norman. You'll hear from Pastor Jim Bear Jacobs of Church of All Nations. He's a Native American brother. And you'll hear from Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, a friend of mine and, and a powerful speaker and author who'll be here at the end of the month. So we're in for a treat this month as God speaks to us from uh, different voices from different places and places in more ways than one. But kind of you would work your way up uh, now, I want to um, make brief introduction. Khan Nguyen was born in Vietnam and raised in the Twin Cities. She has two delightful children and one husband. That's David. I've been married over 10 years. Milan is daughter and Koa, son, right? Kwa. Both. Kwa. Hmm? Thank you. Oh, yes, thank you. And they both attend a Chinese immersion school. So Khan earned her master's in uh, theological studies from Bethel and is a professor at the University of Northwestern in St. Paul teaching courses on race, ethnicity, culture, and ministry. She's enjoyed serving many years in missions and multi-ethnic ministry, most recently working alongside the African refugee community in St. Paul. So now I met Professor Khan when um, we had lunch and Benny's mom was there, it's the first time I met her, and uh, with Dr. Steve Rasmussen, whom I met in Nairobi when I was there um, in 2016. And he had invited me to this luncheon, and uh, I mentioned to Khan that she's helped me think about some things because in the work of multi-ethnic ministry, it's difficult. People want what they want, and, uh, and they want what's comfortable for them from a cultural standpoint. And sometimes you feel like you're trying to balance so many different things. And she said, you know, multicultural ministry, you come like in the Old Testament with, with a gift and, and a sacrifice. We come with the gift of who we are in all of our ethnic identity but also there's a sacrifice in that we don't have everything the way we uh, want it or think it should be. Um, that was helpful for me. Th thank you. And, and one more thing. When, I, when we left this morning, somebody from the first service uh, wanted me to pass on to you, so I say it in front of everybody, <laughs> that her 15-year-old didn't want to come to church this morning, and she dragged her here. And, uh, and the 15-year-old during the service, as she was listening to you, said to her mom, this is the best church service I've been at. <laughs> oh, so, praise, praise the God. Lord. Amen. I'm trying not to take that personally, but I was really, really very grateful. Uh, let's pray again. Lord, we give you thanks for who you are and for all that you do. And Lord, thank you for this wonderful mosaic that you have people all over from every place who call on the name of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be sisters and brothers. I thank you for my sister Khan, and I thank you for how you've been at work in her life already and, and her attendance here at the sanctuary and how she's uh, come to be uh, connected to us over these last several months. And now I pray, Lord God, that you would minister uh, powerfully through and to her. Help us to be attentive to your word this morning. We pray for your will to be done in us and through us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless Amen. you. April 30th, 1975. Can anybody tell me what happened on that date in world history, besides my family? <laughs> Fall of Saigon, very good. The end of the Vietnam War. 
but the beginning of my family's journey to escape Vietnam. Now, I was only three at the time, so my mom always tells us um, these stories so that we remember where we came from. I was born in Dalat in the central part of Vietnam, and before the fall, as the communists were pressing down, further down south, um, they would shoot rockets into, this, into the towns, and people would try to flee. Um, sometimes it would take 12 hours to go six miles, because so many people were trying to leave, to get to the coastal cities, and then we eventually went down to Saigon, the last stronghold, the capital of South Vietnam. When we heard that the South had surrendered, my two uncles and my late father started to make plans to escape. They um, hired a fishing boat and about 45 uh, people, along with my, um, my three uncles, my family of four, my aunt and several cousins, left on this, this boat. Um, that, and that's where we get the phrase boat people, because so many people were trying to leave at that time. And so my mom always recalls us getting caught in this whirlpool and spinning around and round, and she had to lay on the deck of the, the boat, holding me and my brother down on, with both arms. And my cousin recalls the men screaming out, tie the women and children down. And she felt the wind blow so hard, her, her, she felt like her skin was going to fall off her face. Well, there had been some kind of cable that had broken that sent electricity to the motor, and miraculously, my uncle was able to clamp that cable back together and regain control of the boat. So we sailed on for five days and five nights, and eventually made it to a refugee camp in Singapore. Now, we were some of the lucky ones who did not drown at sea, did not get attacked by pirates or raped or killed, We were in the refugee camp about two months before getting um, over to America in another refugee camp. Now, at that time, churches were stepping up. They were receiving refugees, helping them settle in. About the years after the Vietnam War, about 800,000 Vietnamese refugees were settled in the U.S. And this is a picture of um, the family from Calvary Lutheran Church picking us up at the airport in Minnesota. And the next picture is the family that sponsored us, Tom and Doris Moody, um, giving me my first taste of popcorn. <laughs> so they helped us settle in a foreign land, got my father a job, got us housing, and they took us to church. So this was our first introduction to the gospel of Jesus. When we were hungry, they fed us. When we were thirsty, they gave us drink. When we were strangers, they welcomed us in. Now, I said I was only three at the time, so I don't remember the escape. I don't remember the refugee camps. What I do remember was um, on the way from the airport to the Moody's house. Now, my mom had told me that on the airplane trip from Arkansas refugee camp to Minnesota, my brother was throwing up all over the place, and I was fine. Um, but when on the way back from the airport to the Moody's house, I was sitting on Mrs. Moody's lap. And you know when you stop the car in a garage, it kind of jerks? Well, when the car stopped and it kind of jerked, everything came out. <laughs> so that was my child, first childhood memory. And my mom says Mrs. Moody screamed, she vomited on me. <laughs> and I imagine her thinking, is this the thanks I get for bringing you to America? <laughs> well, it's been an interesting challenge growing up as an immigrant, navigating two cultures, Vietnamese culture and American culture. And today I now have the honor and blessing of walking alongside Central African refugees 
another wave of victims of war as they navigate their new world. And all these experiences have, have shaped my understanding of what it means to be an immigrant. So I want to share with you what I've learned about that today, and I'm very honored to be invited by Pastor Dennis to speak to you. It's a very contentious issue in our nation, I know, but did you know that a LifeWay survey says only one in 10 evangelical Christians look to the Bible to shape their views on immigration? So what does the Bible have to say about immigrants? Can you think of anyone who was an immigrant in the Bible? I think of Abraham, who was called out of Ur. I think of, oh, somebody's raising your hand. Nice. You're not even in college yet. Who's an immigrant in the Bible? Yeah. You're, you're getting to the end of my <laughs> the climax here. So let's hold up. Pretend you didn't hear that. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Um, Ruth was from Moab, and she um, immigrated to Israel because of famine. Joseph was a victim of human trafficking, and his father and brothers had to immigrate to Egypt due to famine. David was an asylee. He sought asylum from the king of Moab when he was persecuted by King Saul and Jesus. He was a refugee, right, when they were persecuted by Herod. Now, in the story of Israel, Abraham was called out of Ur, and God promised them a land and the nation of Israel. But first they had to go through slavery in Egypt, and Moses led them to migrate out to freedom towards this promised land. And it says a mixed company went with them. Now, God then gives Israel some guidelines and laws to set up their society, and that also included how to treat the foreigner. Now, there are several words in the Old Testament used um, for foreigner, but I'm going to concentrate on the, the most common one. The word ger in Hebrew is used 92 times in the Old Testament. This is translated as foreigner, stranger, alien, or sojourner. And it's used particularly for those who wanted to live among the Israelites. Don't worry, I won't go through all 92 references, but I will group them into three categories. God called Israel to provide for the foreigner, protect them, and create a place for them. First, um, I'll just read the words and you can see the references on the screen. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. Have you heard of this practice called gleaning? It's when the harvesters would leave some of the field, the grain, the crops, for the poor to come pick and work and provide food for themselves. Does this have any parallels for today's world as we think of the migrants working in our fields? Who, um, who gleaned in the Old Testament? Can you think of somebody who gleaned? Ruth. Yeah, she was a gleaner. And not only did she find food, but she found a husband while gleaning. Because back then they didn't have dating apps like Coffee and Bagel. They just had gleaning. Okay. <laughs> Leviticus. If any of your fellow Israel Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. So Israel was to provide basic needs for the foreigner, food, clothing, 
work wages. Secondly, protect the foreigner. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in your towns. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. I am the Lord your God. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites and for foreigners residing among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. So Israel, make just laws and cities of refuge to protect foreigners. And thirdly, Israel was called to create a place for foreigners. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons, daughters, male and female servants, and Levites, and foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. Assemble the people, men, women, children, foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord, your God, and follow carefully all the words of this law. So if a foreigner wanted to celebrate festivals and feasts and join in worship with the Israelites and follow the Lord, they should be allowed a place in the community. Ezekiel, you are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners residing among you. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. So here Israel sees a vision for how the Lord intends to divide the land to Israel, suggesting that foreigners are going to have an inheritance, a place to live among the tribes. So provide for the foreigner, protect the foreigner, and give a place for the foreigner. But why was Israel to do these things? Many of these verses end like this. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So God is reminding Israel, you know how it feels to be treated unjustly. Don't forget how hard it was to be a foreigner. Another reason to treat foreigners well was because God wanted to bless them and not judge them. In Deuteronomy 14, 28 says, bring all the tithes of that year's produce so that the Levites and the foreigners, the fatherless and widows, may come, eat, and be satisfied. Why? So that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. But unfortunately, Israel was judged and sent into exile because of their idolatry and sins, which included not caring for the poor or the foreigner. For example, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel warned Israel of impending doom and judgment if they don't repent of their ways, including to stop oppressing the foreigner and denying them justice. Above all, God's reason to treat the foreigner is this. Leviticus 19.34. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the heart of God. This is who God is. It's the character of God who calls Israel to love because God is a God of love, who advocates for the most vulnerable in society. This was God's heart for the immigrant in Israel. So how does the Old Testament speak to us today in America? Now, we are not Israel or a theocracy, but I believe we can still live out the heart, of, the heart and the love of God by providing for foreigners, protecting them, and creating a place for them. Today, the world is facing its largest refugee crisis since World War II. The United Nations 
defines a refugee as someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. Let's view this quick video to get a glimpse of what is happening in the world today. Any lip readers out there? <laughs> you adrift on the sea for three days, and certainly it was uh, very difficult to know during that time whether we're going to survive. You look at homes and Aleppo in Syria, Vietnam looked like that after the war. I am the child of Vietnamese refugees who arrived prior to 1975. My family together with uh, 40 others escaped from Vietnam on a very small fishing boat to the, uh, Indonesia. It took 14 days. Uh, my mother made all of us uh, keep a backpack, and in it um, was an address of an aunt in San Francisco, just in case we got lost from each other. My dad couldn't afford to tell everyone that he had sent me off. He said that, you know, wherever you go, uh, remember who you are, you know, Sunny Lay, Lay's, you know. It's not just your name, it's my name too. And your grandfather's the name, so don't mess it up. My parents did not let my grandparents know um, that we were, we were escape. And I could see that my mother never forgive herself for leaving her parents behind. Um, it's too difficult for me to, yeah. There was no looking back. Certainly, there was no looking back for us at that time. Whenever I hear that the Vietnamese resettlement was the last global resettlement of its kind, it's frightening because it's not like there are no more refugees. I have this fear that there are millions of people out there who don't have the resources that we benefited from and that I feel we gave back to. When I saw the picture of the little boys on the uh, beach in Turkey, um, that is really um, bring back a lot of um, sad um, and horrifying memories. No one would undertake that decision lightly, no matter what. How is it that you can hold on to two children and a wife and try to steer a boat at the same time? If you look today, I'm in Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. Those people wouldn't have, wouldn't have left hadn't been for regional conflicts, of which the U.S. has a hand in. I truly believe all the nations that support the war are the nations that are responsible and should have the moral obligation to resettle all these refugees.
the visas get people in, but the resources that's necessary, all of that, somebody got to calculate quickly and, and really give a solution based on what we can afford or what we think our conscience can afford. There are 23 million refugees in the world today. Since 1975, the U.S. has settled more than 3 million refugees. However, in 2017, the president has lowered the number of refugees allowed in the U.S. from 110,000 a year to 50,000 a year. And now this year, it's down to 45,000. That's the lowest number since the Refugee Resettlement Acts of the 70s and 80s. His executive order stated, and I quote, I hereby proclaim that the entry of more than 50,000 refugees would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. And he claimed that we don't know who they are, but we do. Because previously, refugees have been the most vetted category of immigrants. They can't just pick and choose where they want to come. They have to go through a vigorous process, um, interviewing with five different federal agencies like the FBI and Homeland Security, and sometimes it can take up to three years to get processed. By the way, in 2017, a government report found that over the past decade, refugees have contributed $63 billion more in tax revenues than they cost in public benefits. The refugees who I grew up with and who I work with today are not detrimental. Pastor Justin Biakweli, who is the pastor of the African Church and the refugee agency I work with, is from the Congo, and when war broke out, there are now one million refugees he was a refugee himself, and he was rescued by the UN, came here in the 90s, set up the refugee ministry in 2011. He goes back and forth to Africa in their refugee camps to pave the way for refugees to come over. He meets with the UN, um, and when I met him a few years ago, he told me that he sent this letter to the State Department saying, you know what, the US has been meddling in Africa, making a mess over in Congo, what are you going to do about it? So the State Department send a letter back. Okay, we'll receive 50,000 refugees. So I don't know who this man is that can just talk to our government like that, but what a great example of a refugee providing for a refugee, finding them housing and jobs and education and mostly uh, a community to worship with. Now, refugees are actually a very small portion of the overall immigrant population, so let's deal with the elephant in the room. What about the illegal immigrants? or I prefer undocumented. Now, first, we need to recognize that, yes, we are called to submit to our governing authorities and laws in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, and I'm not advocating for open borders, but I do ask, should we follow laws blindly? If everyone blindly followed laws, we wouldn't have the Hebrew midwives rescuing baby boys from being slaughtered. We wouldn't have Jesus breaking the Sabbath law by healing the sick. We wouldn't have Peter and the apostles saying, we must obey God rather than man. We wouldn't have Jews being hidden from Nazis. We wouldn't have Nelson Mandela. We wouldn't have the civil rights movement. I think we should ask deeper questions, not just what is the law, but who gets to make these laws and who benefits. And has the legal way always been the just way? So... Let me ask you this, who were the first illegal immigrants? Maybe we should ask the Native Americans that question. Because I would submit that in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, this was the beginning of the problem. 
We, know, we all know what happened. The European colonizers came over. They, they did not have visas in hand. They took over the land and made laws that benefited themselves. And now, centuries later, some of us have benefited from those laws, and some have been restricted. So let's look. Uh, I'll give you a quick, quick peek at some of the immigration laws that have shaped our history here. In 1790 to 1866, citizenship was only for white people, mainly white males. 1848 was the end of the Mexican-American War, which many deemed a, a, an unjust big power taking over a little power, and so the U.S. took all those southern, southwestern states, and made laws. Anybody heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act? Yeah, in 1882, we welcomed the Chinese over to. Build railroads for us, but we wouldn't allow them citizenship. We wanted them for their cheap labor, but didn't want to give them rights. Sound familiar? From 1880 to 1920, we all know about Ellis Island. About 23 million immigrants came over, and they did not need any visas, mostly from Europe. So, if any of your ancestors came through Ellis Island, anybody know if their ancestors came through Ellis Island? Yeah, they had it easy, and eventually so did you. But after that, there was an anti-immigrant backlash, and a lot of quotas were placed. From 1924 to 1965, only Northern Europeans were allowed, but Southern Europeans, Africans, and Asians weren't allowed in. During the civil rights era, a lesser-known law, the Immigration Act of '68, was enacted, and it eliminated discrimination based on race and place of birth. So it restricted、uh, or lifted the restrictions on African and Asian immigration. Now this was touted as a great civil rights victory, but also during that time, a program ended that allowed Mexicans,、uh, migrant workers, to work in the U.S. So who gets to make these laws and who benefits? Now today there are only four main ways to gain legal status in the U.S. I talked about the refugee and asylee status. Secondly, we have the high skilled worker visa. So many of、um, the STEM field workers you see coming in. And then there's fa- a family connection visa, but this、um, family reunification, depending on what country you are from, can, can take up to 20 years to get here. And then lastly, there's the diversity lottery. But even now, the government wants to cut down on these legal ways to enter the U.S. But for low-skilled workers, there is no legal pathway. There is no line that they can just get into. They are gleaning in our fields, cleaning in our restaurants and hotel rooms. Doing jobs Americans don't want, and contrary to popular myths, by far and wide they are not criminals. They do pay many taxes, and they complement the U.S. workforce. Yet our labor laws are very outdated and don't fit the needs of our 21st century economy. Now I don't want to make it sound like it's such a simple issue, like let them all in or keep them all out. I know there are many, many complications that need to be worked out, and I realize it's not so cut and dry. It's not a black and white, white issue. Life isn't always so black and white, because sometimes it's Asian. <laughs> I don't want to get too detailed about policy and legality, but if you're interested tonight at 5 p.m., there will be a、um, Liberian immigration lawyer speaking, hosted by Urban Homeworks and John Lundberg. Also, check out resources like World Relief, a national Christian refugee ministry advocating for a bipartisan solution that balances law and security with justice and compassion, and keeping families together. But I do think, as Christians, we need to speak truth to power, to protect immigrants, and say, "Let's base our laws on generosity, and justice, and compassion." 
This past week was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, and his words ring true today. He says, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. The church, if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. We need to call out immigration views that are based on stereotyping Mexicans as drug dealers, criminals, and rapists, Muslims as terrorists, scapegoating immigrants as threats to our economy, or based on white nationalism, white su supremacy, and racism. But sadly, that hostile rhetoric has increased even in the Christian community. If you remember in East Germany, the communists built a wall to keep people in. Now, we capitalists want to build a wall to keep people out. But the scriptures declare that Jesus came to tear down walls, to tear down walls of hostility between people, between Jew and Greek, black and white, Mexican and American, Israeli and Palestinian, undocumented and documented, North Korean and South Korean, African immigrant and African American. And here at Sanctuary, we've been promised that the wall will be torn down between those who have to eat wafers for communion and the privileged who get to eat Hawaiian bread. <laughs> I think I know what manna tastes like now. And give me that bread of life, Pastor. <laughs> Allow me to talk about one more category of foreigner found in the New Testament. We are called to practice hospitality. Now, that Greek word is philoxenia. There are two parts to that word, phileo, which means love, and xenos, which means stranger. So hospitality means love of strangers. Contrast that with xenophobia, which means an unfounded fear or hatred of foreigners. Let's also look at 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, Christians, we have a nation in God. We have a belonging in God. We are a people of God on one hand. Yet, on the other hand, we are still foreigners in this culture. Peter was addressing Christians who were migrants dispersed all over Asia Minor. They were called foreigners because they were alienated for their faith. Just as God reminded the Israelites that they were once foreigners, God reminds us too that we are foreigners without a place in this world, that we too needed mercy. One version says it this way, you are chosen and honored by God, even as outcasts in the minority. Maybe you came to America as an immigrant and know how it feels not to fit in. Maybe you were born here, but somewhere down the line, your ancestors came as immigrants struggling to find their way in a new land. Some of you may have been born here, but have been treated as if you were an outcast. Perhaps that's why you wear sweatshirts that say Black Lives Matter, because your community has been treated as if you don't matter, 
as if you are second-class citizens. Or maybe your people have been relegated to or concentrated in a reservation camp, treated as foreigners on your own land. We have vulnerable people among us. And if America won't protect them, provide for them, or give them a place, then the church needs to rise up. Will we welcome them? Will we embrace them? Will the church live such good lives and do such good deeds that others would glorify God? Maybe there are refugees needing provision. Maybe there are DACA dreamers needing protection or an immigrant church needing a shared place to worship. Maybe God is calling sanctuary to be the next sanctuary for those who need refuge. Can you envision who the next people groups might be that would find their home here? Maybe God is calling sanctuary to live more deeply into her beautiful multi-ethnic vision. Let me wrap up with a couple more stories. Last summer, Pastor Justin asked me to go to the airport to greet a new family from the Congo. And yes, that's my daughter pointing to her. I thought it would be a good idea to bring my children, so we made signs in Swahili and English. Now, I later learned that this family, the father, during the war, was targeted and imprisoned by soldiers because he was trying to protect innocent farmers. After being released, he still had to go into hiding because they were still trying to kill him. Some of his family members survived getting poisoned, and they lived in scarcity for six years in a Ugandan refugee camp before being reunited with their friend, Pastor Justin. Now, one week after arriving to the U.S., their children are very gifted musicians, and they led the congregation in worship, and they do so every week. These are not weak refugees coming in to suck our resources as, they ha- as if they have nothing to give us. These refugees are not detrimental to the U.S. They are strong, they are gifted, they are faithful. And maybe we need them to show us how to live again, to regain our soul. But what does it profit us if America claims to be the greatest in the world, yet loses its own soul? If America wants to be first, we have to learn to be last and learn from those who are considered last in this world. I've learned a lot from my refugee friends. I always like to ask them, what, what do you see as the biggest difference between um, Africa and America? And another family, not this family, um, a couple years ago when they came, they were like, you know, in Africa, when we come move into a neighborhood, all the people come out and welcome us, and we know all our neighbors. Here, like, I don't see any neighbors. Where are the neighbors? How are the single people going to get married? <laughs> I suppose they could glean. <laughs> um, but then they mo- recently moved to another neighborhood in St. Paul, and we're throwing this birthday party, and they were making all this food, and I was like looking out in the backyard, where, so where's the barbecue grill? said, oh, we're going to put it in the, in the front, the sidewalk, so that if any neighbors walk by, they can have some food. I was like, wow, like, I can barely cook for my family every day, like, let alone all the neighbors, <laughs> right? What an example they have been to me. Let me go back to the day that I met this family. As the family came to the baggage claim area, some of the teenagers just grabbed my kids' hands and were playing with them and talking to them. And one by one, I met all the children. And as I started walking towards the mother, I started tearing up. There was something going on in my spirit. And she introduced herself to me, and she said, Hello, my name is Kitu Maini. It means hope. And I was just like, hope is my mother's name. And she reached her arms out to me and said, I am your mother, and embraces me. So the waterfall was just continuing from there out, and I just 
they probably thought I was some crazy person who couldn't keep it together. But I just sensed it in my spirit that the Lord was showing me that my life had come full circle. And I hope you see the irony in this situation. This foreigner having just arrived, extending her arms to me, a US citizen, to welcome me into her family. But isn't that not the beautiful picture of the gospel? That's the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus. This Jesus was a dark-skinned, Middle Eastern, low-skilled carpentry worker, persecuted ethnic minority, refugee with no money to his name, categories that probably would not get him into this nation today. And if you don't know this Jesus, he invites you to find your place in an utterly different kind of nation. When we follow Jesus, we are no longer alone. His death on the cross takes our sin and shame and resurrection gives us new life. We find a new belonging, a new commitment, a new community, a new status. We show mercy to others because God has shown mercy to us. We do good to foreigners even if it puts us at odds with a xenophobic culture. We don't pledge allegiance to any nation. We pledge allegiance to King Jesus. We no longer live to advance this tiny kingdom in the U.S., but we live to advance the kingdom of God on earth. We love our neighbor, not pick and choose who our neighbor will be based on their economic impact to our country. This is Jesus' invitation to live out his kingdom. In this kingdom, we don't enter through any merit-based system. In this kingdom, to be a citizen, you don't need a work visa. But what you do need is a passport stamped with the blood of Christ. When you have that stamp, he declares, we are no longer foreigners, we are family. We are no longer foreigners. We are family. So thank you, Jesus, that you have welcomed us into your family and help us to extend the hospitality to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.